0: Thanks, everyone. I, I think that discussion seemed to be working OK, so I didn't want to interrupt too quickly. Um, but now what we'd like to do is have a bit of feedback from each group, perhaps to say a little bit about what sorts of things uh, came up in your discussion. You know, you don't have to have answers so much as questions sometimes. But also, if you had any ideas of what made sense to you that seemed to come up, let's have a bit of that as well. All right? So um, I think I'll go sort of around
1: if you've got to say give, give us a bit of feedback thanks I'm sorry I feel very guilty I don't know um, well we ranged over a number of areas uh, I- including the question of how you were to understand the fall and genesis and so on uh, and explored the idea that in fact it is saying something very profound which you can't get scientifically Uh, that science uh, leaves one really with no purpose or uh, uh, clarity about things. It can't answer things. One of the things it can't answer, we explored a bit, is how we can even discuss this at all. Here are we part of the system uh, involved in it, apparently created by it, uh, the the helpless tools of our genes and so on, and yet we presume to stand above that and draw judgments about it. that very fact, which is uh, very often uh, ignored by the evolutionists, is something which uh, is a given which we've got to explain, and it brings with it all these dangers that uh, you're going to find problems. Uh, A a very simple example uh, thrown out was um, we we come to realise that gravity, for instance, which is essential for our survival, is also what kills us if we walk off a cliff. Uh, And that's the, so, so you can't uh, extrapolate the two and, and sim- talk too simply mm. about what is good and what is evil thanks
0: we'll, we'll come back uh, with reactions after we've heard from everyone so a uh, special from this group uh, thanks Yeah. Okay. Um,
2: we were talking about the well the alignment so relatively easy as scientists to see kind of the evolutionary history as
0: that could be the way God creates but then at the fall being somewhat relatively recent thing, uh, how that can uh, account for all, all the evil we uh, we see. Also the fact that suffering doesn't necessarily equate, suffering and evil aren't uh, like the same thing. Uh, so you have, when you have evil, you can, it will eventually lead to suffering, uh, but all suffering is an evil. So, um, so we're thinking about that.
2: And also the fact of uh, when evil itself potentially uh, could have so its impact on the human race and natural order seems the Bible suggests in the fall, but then also the serpent was there before humans really did
0: anything. Uh, so there seems like there's some spiritual evil force possibly around
2: prior to human action. So when, how does that fit in? Um, when did that was that did that a involved from the instant God created, can that
0: account for it? Or yeah. so those variety of things we up look and some well, others I have mentioned. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, but we sort of um, thought about what creation was like for
3: people, to some extent, and the fact that there would have been suffering in creation before the existence of um, people because you'd have had animals eating each other and so on so anyway. world didn't move, it would in fact be sterile. You need to have these things in order for the earth's surface to regenerate and for creation to become possible. So in a sense you can't have um, the creation process happening without some type of suffering perhaps as a sort of fallout. Um, I think that's it yeah. actually <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we didn't speak about much,
4: we talked about why well, we wondered where, how how things might have happened before before the fall and how are we came up with Things have change. We thought that there was good as even in that, even now, as well as as um, as as well as suffering and evil. So we we thought about a lot of mysteries and (coughs) inclusion.
0: Thanks very much. Well, we've got a good. uh, Yeah. Pretty much, (laughs) the (laughs) theory and all that. I I sense that, I mean, a couple of things came up repeatedly, and they were the notion that suffering isn't to be equated with evil, but Mm. clearly there's somehow. One can lead to the other, and and, you know, that's but also that we're all, um, not altogether comfortable with this (coughs) area of our understanding, I think. And I think it's true to say, in my experience, and I guess this may be shared, is that it seems that, um, in theological colleges, this particular area isn't probably very well treated because you don't hear Mm. it spoken about very well from the pulpit ever, you know, you, you very rarely get a really get something to get your teeth into mm. about the, the fall in, a, in, a, in this area, but you know, what about hominids and all that? Anyway, so let's yeah. see if we can get yeah. the rest yeah.
5: of Well, I just, I just <laughs> want to pick up on what this group brought out here, and that was God's answer to Job. And I think you've struck on something that we really must embrace, and that is there is a sense in which we cannot arrive at an answer. And I don't want to, you know, on the one hand, it sounds like we're ducking the issue. But actually, there is something about God saying to Job, this question is too big for you. God is God and I'm not. And so I think that there is something very true there, that what we are playing with here is mystery. And there are some things that we will not know until the end of time. And so I I just... What have encourage us to embrace that? <laughs> um, we are not here going to find answers. But this whole question of pre, pre-fall suffering, I think um, all the, the, the issues that you guys brought up, um, it was really hard, actually, to find um, either scientists or theologians who've really dealt much with this issue. Um, and some of the guys who I did look at their responses were quite interesting. Everybody acknowledges that we can't know. But just to give you some um, a flavour of what some people have said, John Polkinghorne, um, he talks about a process theodicy. Theodicy just meaning how do we, ex- how do we explain the goodness of God in the face of, um, of evil. So he, calls, he talks about a process theodicy. And interestingly, he distinguishes between physical and moral evil, And he would say that physical evil has always been present. So this whole idea of pre-fall suffering until humanity comes along and however God does it, breathes his image into humanity, we do have a natural process of species evolving and species dying out. Um, And he, he, he talks about this process that of necessity involves suffering. This is just the process by which God ordains creation to create itself. Um, and he, uh, he's got an interesting picture of the fall, I think. He's one of the few who I found who actually had a stab at it. Um, and he talks about the fall as an awareness of the harshness of nature, an awareness of evil. So he actually talks about a fall upwards an awareness of evil that comes with the evolutionary attainment of significant intelligence. I actually find that really hard to square with the biblical record because what Paul talks about is blindness caused by sin, not sight. So theologically, I think that's problematic. But, you know, when you're trying to mesh um, what we understand at the moment... Through the science, through science, um, and how do we put our theological lens on top of that? But that—that's Pokinghorn's idea. Um, John Hick's—he's interesting. <coughs> the world has always been fallen, and he sees this fallenness as necessary for human soul making. So he sees the world as always having been crea- as, as having been created combative, and we begin with pain and brokenness, and we work through the pain and brokenness towards um, a higher morality. I have a real problem with that biblically um, because that's just directly counter to the biblical picture. And he has real problems when you start to talk about Christ and the incarnation and the whole idea of redemption. Colin Gunton... um, he views history eschatologically. And so what we are doing is he sees creation as moving towards an eschatological goal, which is in Christ. Now, he, he gets a little complicated. He distinguishes between a creation that is complete and a creation that is perfect. So he sees perfection as found in creation, you know, moving towards its eschatological goal. And he sees the fall as a thwarting of the eschatological destiny of creation. And he sees sin as anything that might thwart this, this path. All of them would acknowledge we cannot speak with this, about this with any certainty. But that's just a few examples of what people, people have um, said about this issue. So we have no answers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but the question that I had when I looked at this issue is, well, is there any point or any event in history that we can reference that might give us any hint as to how things might have been pre-full? And really the only thing I could think of was Christ, God incarnate, um, and the resurrected Christ, what... what What might that reveal to us about about pre-fall creation? I do want to focus now on the person of Christ and the work of Christ because it is here that we actually find the uniquely Christian response to the whole issue (coughs) of evil and suffering. And just firstly and briefly, regarding this whole issue of what might things have looked like before the fall, um, we do have historical attestation regarding Jesus risen body and what that was like. And scripture tells us that he is, he was and still is both recognizably human and yet there is something qualitatively different to what we're like now. I mean, C.S. Lewis has this picture of the pre-fall creation where humanity rules in a way that is utterly spiritual um, such that he talks about you know, humanity having had knowledge and spiritual awareness, that they were able to c- control creation in different ways. And he talks about, at the fall, we've lost this. I wonder if when he contemplated the resurrected Christ, he might have gotten some of his ideas. Um, he's not express about that. But the obvious thing to note, of course, is that we've, we've got to be careful even looking to the resurrected Christ because Jesus' resurrection body... Is expressly the eschatological goal of our humanity not expressly how we began and so even that you know even looking at him um, we really can't speak with any certainty on the issue but I do want to spend a bit of time now looking at the Christian view of God's intervention into this whole world of suffering. Because the question that we're really asking God is, God, if you are good, why don't you stop this? Why don't you intervene? That's ultimately it. That's what we want to know, isn't it? But we need to ask ourselves, what is it exactly that we are asking God to do? And we do have to look at the question of moral evil here because the pivotal event was a human event. It was the fall. And the biblical thesis is that to a significant degree, the evil that we experience is attributable to human responsibility. The thing that needs to be reversed is the failure of human beings to rightly represent God. And so what is it that we think... (laughs) Needs to be done. At the human level, is it as simple as just eradicating all the evildoers? One author put it like this We might say that God should not have allowed the worst offenders, the Hitlers, Pol Pots, and Mao Zedongs of this world, to do what they did. But what about the next level? Say, thugs, sadists, rapists, child abusers and drug pushers. Should God step in and stop them? And if he did so, another layer of offenders would become the worst. Say, drunk drivers, shoplifters, burglars and the like. So how far do we want God to go? What will he do when he gets down to that layer of people who tell the occasional fib? Or perhaps fail to help those around them who, who might be worse off than they are. And I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn really hit the nail on the head, so to speak, when he said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them off from the rest of us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. The line dividing good from evil cuts through every human heart. And so Christianity says that the situation is rather more complex than simply eliminating evildoers. And as for nature, what are we going to do with nature? Is it just a case of learning sustainable environmental management? (coughs) But that's actually not going to stop the tectonic plates from shifting or volcanoes from blowing up and doing what they do? Or are we actually asking God to modify nature so that planks of wood turn to mush if I decide to hit with it rather than build with it? Are we asking God, in effect, to love us by obliterating our ability to love and so what Christianity says was God's intervention is Christ on the cross. And it said at the beginning, to understand what God is like, we look to Christ. God is love. And for our definition of love, we look to Jesus Christ on the cross. So 1 John 3, we read, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And it's at the cross that I think Christianity offers the most remarkable answer to the problem of evil. So I just want to roll through. What do we see at the cross? The first thing we see is we see forgiveness in the face of justice. Forgiveness in the face of justice. There is a real sense with the fall that something terribly wrong has been done. And you only need to hop from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 to see that evil and violence, it escalates very, very quickly to the first murder. Cain murders his brother Abel. And from that point on in the biblical text, we see a cry for justice, a cry for setting the wrong, a cry for setting the evil to right. And now, justice, I think, is a two-edged concept. It depends on which side of it you're on. Um, I think that here in the West... We struggle with the idea of God's justice sometimes. But I wonder what a Christian in Aceh, you know, when she wakes up each morning and she wonders whether her house will be raided or whether she'll be assaulted, I wonder what she thinks about the idea of justice. And at the cross, we actually do see the full weight of God's justice, except that it is borne by Christ. And I'm aware there's quite a controversy going on at the moment in church circles in the sense that many people find this idea difficult, you know, did God, isn't God being rather unfair to Jesus? But that actually presupposes that Jesus had no say in the matter, doesn't it? You know, the claim that Jesus himself is God, if that is true, if our God is Trinity, then what we see is Jesus choosing, God himself choosing to bear the price of evil in our place. And so from that perspective, we see the cross as a gift, and it's a gift of love. And so at the cross, we see forgiveness, and we see justice. The second thing we see at the cross is power, because we see a conquering of evil. Now, the Bible never actually tells us how this is done, I don't think we can really know. I think that is another mystery that we're grappling with. But a big part of the theology of the cross is that because Jesus was utterly and completely obedient to God the Father, evil was unable to gain a grip. So you have this picture of he he never gave in to evil and so evil could just, just keep slipping off him. And John Stott puts it in terms of the perfect moral victory. And so at the cross, we see power. And the third thing we see, and this is very profound, at, at the cross, we see utter love. Now, we see love already in the forgiveness and the justice. But if we look more closely, what we see on the cross is a love that identifies with us in our suffering. What does it say about Christianity that at the very centre is a God who suffers. At the very centre of Christianity is a God who suffers with us. And I think part of what makes the fact of pain and injustice and evil so awful for us is the apparent absence of God, his silence. God, why aren't you doing anything? C.S. Lewis, again, you know, after his wife died of cancer, he he wrote this. He said... Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy, that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then with praise, you will be welcomed with open arms. But to go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting, And double bolting from the inside. But when we look to the cross, we see Jesus Christ cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see love that identifies. And when we look at China and we look at Burma, we ask, Where is God? And when we look at the cross, we answer, He's actually right there with them. Jesus has been there. And so in Jesus, we find solidarity with us and we find permission. We find permission to cry out at our dilemma. Christianity says that suffering and evil are real, it hurts. And we are allowed to say so. So at the cross, we find love that identifies with us. And finally, and this is relevant to our whole discussion about nature, at the cross, we see a reversal of Adam's failure. We see a reversal of Adam's abdication of his position as ruler over creation. Romans chapter 5, I understand some of you are studying Romans at the moment. Romans chapter 5 speaks of Adam as the pattern of this abdication of humanity. But then in Romans 5, Paul talks about Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect human life, died to save humanity, and then rose from the dead to conquer death. And we see the one who did what Adam failed to do. So in Jesus, we see, he exos- we see him exercise perfect rule over creation, the creation that he made. And in Jesus, we see the pattern of all that we were meant to be. And through being the perfect Adam, he leaves us with the promise that there will come a time when creation will groan no more. But rather, creation will be made new We will reach our eschatological destination. And Christ, the perfect Adam, the perfect ruler, will rule. And we see this vindicated in his resurrection. And so in Christ we see hope. We see the hope and the promise that one day we too will be completely remade and restored to the fullness of our humanity, And in the meantime, while we wait, we see love. And it's a love that wins victory over evil, but in a way that preserves freedom and choice. And so we see a love that waits, and a love that respects, and a love that preserves (coughs) love. And so in answer to the question, could a good and loving God have made a world like this? I think the Christian has to say, yes. And we see the two things come face to face at the cross of Christ. Thank you.
0: A trail, back, down the the so, yeah. I mean, it's just I think all about that. I, mean, I think it's worth just saying, saying. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, um, nevertheless, I think now's a chance. to...
5: Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't ever really get told why. We get hints of why the suffering continues. Um, I think part of it is God is giving us time. I do think we do see that in Scripture that God is giving humanity time to turn to Him. Um, but I think, yeah, as Christians, the most profound thing we can offer to someone who is going through a rough time, is actually, you know, you're not alone in this. And in in the most real sense, the God we have is a God who comes in and suffers with us. That's how much he loves us. And that's actually very, very profound. I I don't think any other faith system offers that. Hmm. I think the other point as well is it doesn't gloss over the reality of suffering. It's not an illusion, it's real. Yeah. Uh,
4: I was interested, you, you sort of touched on the idea that our perspective on justice depends on where we are and so on. And I think maybe that our whole perspective on the, the problem of suffering depends
2: on, on where we are um, and, and also when we are. I, I, I was reading something by Arthur McGrath the other day
4: that was saying that the problem of suffering didn't really become a problem until the enlightenment and kind of religious views I wonder if you could comment
2: on that is he right? he was saying
4: he kind of
2: (laughs) 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 That's right (laughs) yeah (laughs)
5: I think um, in one sense, yes, he's right. And I, I know, the, I know the, the, um, the quote you're talking about. I have a feeling, though, the issue that he's raising is the problem of evil as an argument that God doesn't exist. Um, in that I don't... I mean, the reality is people have been grappling with the problem of the existence of suffering and why do we suffer since Job... Um, Job is the oldest biblical text we've got Um, and so in that respect it's a very old question and it's an eternal well uh, eternal in the sense of during the time that we have kind of question but I think as far as an argument against the existence of God I I I think that could be right yeah.
2: especially if you look in Job, you have the idea that the the tempter is a role ordained by God. And it's actually, it's not designed to bring suffering, it's actually designed to to bring humanity into fullness. And that's exactly what you see in Genesis, because you've got the tempter, or the Satan, as he's later identified with the snake, exercising God-ordained role of temptation. You can eat this. Yeah. Like God. Yeah. And suffering comes when they make the wrong choice and they put themselves out of relationship with God. And the evil is actually the choice and the suffering that results. And you have this double kind of concept of temptation being something to build up. But also, there is an element of, of malice and perversity that has crept mm-hmm. into the royal attempts, and you see developing mm-hmm. through the Bible as a whole. Mm-hmm. And actually, I believe you can't even begin to address the question of evil without looking at that. And in Christ, you know, he's the second
5: Adam who was without sin. He made the right choices. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it is the whole idea of choice, and that's probably something that I didn't bring out enough in the explanation of the fall, and that the significance there is it was a choice that Eve and then Adam actually made. So thank you for that. The the interesting thing there is that whole idea of the temptation and giving humanity the, the opportunity to, I suppose, develop morally... That is the sort of idea that um, Hicks is very big on, actually, um, in his whole idea of the the evolutionary process and explaining how we answer this question of the existence of of evil and suffering. he's sort of saying we need these hurdles to jump, to actually grow morally. Um, And I think, um, yeah, yeah, it's Hicks who really brings that. Who brings that out? And in that respect, I think there's a validity there. I think the only issue that I have with him is he's sort of saying, "That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that is the end of the story." Is we just we just complete we continue to jump these hurdles and we mature and eventually hit perfection. Um, and I, th- I think that is problematic. But he does highlight that point of soul making. It's very well
1: put in him by Richard Key, isn't it? You may be right. It's, it's very, I mean, through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, his grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Mm. The flame shall not hurt thee, his only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold will not lie.
0: And of course the flame shouldn't hurt thee, really. It won't hurt the essential you, yeah. you know,
4: of sorrow. Right. That's right. It's a comfort part. I reminded of the time when Jesus said i forgot was this what,
0: concerning the fact that Peter was going to go through a difficult patch? He said, woe to him no, for temptation must come, but work to him by whom it, it comes. comes? Yeah. You no, know, so saying there is a, as you said, a, a, te- you know, a role that temptation must apply but don't you volunteer to be, you know, to to be in the role? Be of the tempter. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. That's how I read that. So, anyone else though?
4: Yeah. If um, Satan. in heaven Satan isn't there to tempt us does free will actually mean anything in terms of your example of
5: love with your little people mm, yeah, yeah that is I mean what I've run is what we call the free will defence and that is probably the biggest question that's left hanging with the free will defence now I'm scratching my reins here as to who I read it might have been Gunton um, who talks about a change of character of things in the eschaton, and the issue is there's a... Quali- he, he talks about a qualitative difference between a love where you never really had the chance to choose and a love where you have faced the choice, made the right choice, and are then enjoying um, that perfect relationship with God. So he does talk about quite a qualitative transformation in in the eschaton. Which actually gives a
4: purpose to this world.
5: Yeah, well. yeah. I mean, obviously, his is not the only view. I'd be interested to hear if anybody else has any other thoughts on that because I do think that is a very valid and it is a big question. Um, what's to say there's not going to be another fall in the new creation is is the question, really, bearing in mind that we're all assuming that there will be a lot of love in the new creation and it will be a good thing. Um, yeah, but yeah.
4: I, kind of personally take the view that this creation is necessary for the eschaton to be a perfect place where we have free will but still continue to always choose love
5: yeah and I, and I think that's right because I do think we do see in salvation history in scripture that there is a purpose and a direction to life now um, it's not we're not just kind of Floating along, waiting for things to change. We are actually, you know, God is working out purposes through it. So I, I think that, that's a right view, yeah. Yeah. Um, I
0: can't help, you. I think it's a good moment to mention something which many of us have heard. You know the phrase, act of God, it's used in the insurance industry. Uh, I guess anyone who's ever thought of this already knows what I'm about to say. But, you know, in the insurance industry, it's used to mean some dreadful which is causing of damage mm. to people and property, you know, because that's what they've got to then redress. But it's an awful phrase, isn't it? It's you know, <laughs> picking out God to be the role it's specifically mm. for the worst bits. You know, why, why don't they all say, well, maybe the act of God is, is the people who then come and help, you know, the act of God yeah, is yeah. the ships that have off the coast of the Burma trying to get in and help. Exactly. And the people have been persuading the, the people in charge there to allow the help, you know, and that's the act of God. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, they're both in somehow God is partly involved in both parts, you know, he's ultimately responsible for creation, you know, mm. and he, he clearly accepts that responsibility mm. ultimately through Christ. as you've. Mm.
5: Mm. That's a really good point to make, yeah. You know, God... You know, I had to write an essay once called Is God to Blame for Suffering and Evil? God has no trouble being responsible, fully responsible for his sovereignty. (laughs) He's not making any apologies. And in Christ, I think he takes the blame. So, yeah. Uh,
0: Following
4: on from that, being a lawyer, um, when, when the term Acts of God appears in a legal document, if there are people praying for something to happen and it happens... And it's not necessarily a good thing. Are they legally responsible? It
5: <laughs> becomes an issue of proving causation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I there was a movie actually well, no, called the, the, man the Man Who's Eagle, but scary. no, there isn't.
4: Uh, <laughs> but then there was- at the end of it um, because the the, the pub people were trying to sue the Christians for (laughs) (laughs) prayer. But but what the legal team said at the end of it was that the people in the pub believed in the power of prayer more than the Christians did.
2: That's a good point.
5: (laughs) But I would have hazarded a guess that they lost. (laughs)